generation dwells here. And then we moving by the pack, so we moving them. And even if you don't, then you do, cause you cool with them. They be like, I only went to school with them. Welcome to Color Correction, a GCC podcast about race from the perspective of a black girl, an Asian guy, and a white guy, too. Uh, I'm Andrew, he, him pronouns, and I'm Asian. And I'm Bethany, I use she, her pronouns, and I'm a black woman. I'm Chris, I use he, him pronouns, I'm a white man. And we are here in the middle of April, uh, a way of reckoning time that has no meaning now. (laughs) (laughs) Because we are living in a different time, uh, in a different universe, the age of the coronavirus uh, once again, not in our studio, but we have officially succumbed to the spirit of the age and are recording our podcast on Zoom today. It looks um, like everything in life is yeah. on Zoom now. Yeah, everything is a Zoom. Um, so that's why the audio might be a little wonky, but hopefully it holds up. Uh, we'd like to start our episodes by talking about any kind of updates or things that we want to revisit from pre- previous episodes. Uh, I, Bethany, I think you have an update. Um, yeah, so my update um, is on the status of prisons in Philadelphia. Um, in a previous episode, I said that the prisons were going to be, des- if it gets into the prisons, that it, was, that it was going to decimate the prison population. And that is, in fact, two weeks later, exactly what is happening. Teen infection rate um, in Philadelphia is the highest um, population. They're, they're keeping track of infection rates by zip code across the city. Um, and then including the prisons in that and the infection rate is like four times that of like the highest zip code, as well as the fact that we lost a black woman, um, that was, um, imprisoned in Riverside Correctional Facility. Her name was Javon Harris, and she was a 48-year-old woman, um, I believe a mother. Um, and yeah, we lost yeah. her to COVID-19. So um, her, her release my, date was in my, August, too. It was like coming up. Yep. Yep. She was supposed to be released in four months. And instead of being released from the confines of prison, um, she's dead because of a virus. Um, when she could have been released early. So um, yeah, my correction is not a correction this week. It's an update um, and we need to free everybody that is in the prisons right now. And if you wanna help out and do that, you can feel free to donate at phillybailout.com. The Philadelphia Community Bail Fund is enacting our Mama's Day campaign a little bit early um, to try and get as many black mamas out as possible um, before COVID-19 kills them as well. Yeah. Um, and in terms of um, our speak up section, listener mail, uh, we received an email from uh, Shamthuru who mentioned to us that um, that they thought it would be interesting if we talked about climate change and the climate movement, uh, which, you know what, I think is an insightful thing to say because I, climate change is a justice issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about how these things affect communities of color in a little bit, but it's certainly climate change and the climate has justice implications. And I think that's a good thing to point out. So yeah. why don't we dive right into the, what we're talking about, what everybody, the only thing anybody can ever talk about now, uh, which is how are you doing? Um, so COVID-19 ha- check-in. That's right. Yeah. I kind of like how every conversation, how you can immediately be like, so how are you doing? 
Like I was having this conversation, like a judge called me the other day and he was, and he and I have a, like a very professional relationship, but he was like, how are, how are you doing? And I was like, well, judge, this is how I'm doing pretty shitty. How are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) And he was also like, not in so, in so many words, but also like pretty shitty. This is a shitty time. And we connected Mm -hmm. over that. So how are you guys doing? Chris, how are you doing? Um, we, we, uh, I was, I was reflecting on this and, and I'm more or less, I'm more or less okay. I'm working. I'm, I'm resting. I'm eating enough. When the day is sunny, I can sit in my backyard. Like <laughs> I may die at any point. Wait, what? <laughs> I said, oh. I may die at any point. That's how I feel. That's how oh, I'm okay. feeling. <laughs> I'm at that point of the quarantine where I'm just mm-hmm. like, is it today? I, I feel like, yeah, I feel like um, the Marvel movie where at the end they all kind of just dissipate. Like infinite, uh, yeah, was it Infinity, Infinity War. Wars? Right, yeah. That's how I feel. Yes. Like, I feel like I might just like, just dissipate, just go away, <laughs> just uh-huh. fade away. I'm so sick of this. Yeah. yeah. Every day feels like Wednesday. Mm-hmm. It's fucking terrible. I'm miserable. I don't know how you're okay, Chris. Chris, you were talking about how your work keeps you busy, pretty busy during the day. It does. Yeah. Um, the the thing I said is it it makes this um it makes this like bubble and like the the thing I feel coming out of it. I mean, like I, I'm I'm physically, emotionally okay, and I'm also experiencing this like whiplash when I come out of that bubble where like I read my email, I hear the news, and the the reality comes like rushing back at me. And in those moments, I'm exhausted. Um, the reason I say I'm okay is because I am. Like, th- those things aren't happening to me. Yeah, sure. And maybe my issue is that I'm just checking the news too much. I just compulsively check the news and my phone yells it at me. It just yeah. throws the news in my face. Oh yeah, no, I get the alerts from the city. Um, there's, a, there's an almost daily text um, on updates about the coronavirus. Sorry, I compulsively calculate the percentage of deaths every time I see the numbers. I'm like, okay, as long as it stays under 3%, we have no reason to be concerned. Like, I've just created that number. (laughs) So every time it goes up, I'm like, all right, the death rate divided by uh, the total number of cases. All right, we're only at at 2.5 percent we're good i don't yeah, know we, why i feel redeemed by that we call that the death threshold i think i'm definitely in death like the threshold. bargaining phase of grief where i'm like where i'm where i'm i keep reading like conservative news about how it's like everything is an overreaction and i'm like i don't i don't agree with you but i hope you're right yeah i'm <laughs> I, I, I'm I'm seeing those things come through my my newsfeed. It may it does make me feel crazy when I see when I see people who are like, just affects people who are over sixty five. It's fine. It's not a pandemic. I mean, there's a there's going to be a protest in Harrisburg in two days, uh, t- t- protesting the quarantine. And I'm like, you're stupid, but I hope you're right. <laughs> you know, uh, right. that's kind of where I am. Um, yeah, so I mean, we could go back and forth on statistics and what we've been reading in the news and stuff like that. Um, but why don't we um, let's talk about the the reason that we're talking about COVID nineteen again uh, again <laughs> uh, is because 
I mean, first of all, it is it is the only thing anybody's able to talk about. Talking about anything else feels kind of impossible right now. Yeah. But we're seeing it. We're seeing the, this moment in time is highlighting a lot of really interesting things about our mm-hmm. society, about its economic foundations, about its white supremacist foundations, about just by how, but just by how people are affected and how people are reacting to that. And I thought we, you know, we thought it would be interesting to explore that a little bit. Yeah, because we're finally getting to see how it explicitly um, affects people of color. Uh, initially, when we were starting, when we were first hearing the statistics of the death rates, there was no connection to um, to race. And a lot of um, Black pundits were like, we need to be talking about race. I have a feeling that we need to be talking about race. And now that it's happening, it is so explicitly exposing the harmful racial implications and socioeconomic disparities that COVID-19 is enacting on different communities. Mm -hmm. But I think it really starts first with the fact that Black people didn't think they could get it, myself Mm -hmm. included. Yourself included. Um, Tell me more about that. Yeah. I think I really wanted there to be a disease that Black people couldn't get. I really think that's what it was. Um, So initially, when we first started hearing about COVID-19, most of the cases were white folks. And Mm -hmm. the cases involving Black folks were Black folks that were asymptomatic. Um, What we now know is that because of socioeconomic disparities, Black folks don't travel as often as white folks. That's just what it is. So initially, the people that were getting um, really terrible cases of COVID-19 were folks that had recently traveled. Right. Um, And now we're seeing um, that it wasn't a matter of Black people can't get it. Black people didn't have the lifestyle that would connect them with opportunities to catch it. But... I think there's this like historic distrust of American medicine and like also this like idealism of like wanting something to miss our communities, like finally getting a fair shake. Like what type of, it would be like really awesome reparations if there was this crazy virus that black people couldn't get. Like I'd be good (laughs) off the 40 acres and a mule if that was the case. Like it comes from a very real place. I feel like so many people are just kind of like, mad at black folks and like that's so stupid why would you think that but i feel like you can't talk about black people thinking that they couldn't get it or how it's really like crushing black communities without acknowledging the historical places that that feeling or action comes from if that makes sense yeah, sure. And I mean, just going back to your initial point, if you look at the way the disease spread in the Philly area, and this is true of any kind of metropolitan area, the first place to get hit hard was Montgomery County. Yep. Yes. Where all the rich white folks were, who were traveling and doing whatever uh, were, and bring, they were bringing the disease back. And you see the pattern of the disease everywhere, like even on cruise ships, like right. passengers get it, and then the workers get it, and then they start spreading yep. it each other yep and that's what happened in philly like montgomery county like people trap rich people who are able to travel got it and then sooner or later it's the people that have to keep, keep working that are getting it and then it kind of mm-hmm. filters down in that way well and let's mm-hmm. come back to and riverside really just- correctional facility right like those 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 prisoners weren't traveling 
Like they, it, like the, the disease came in from the guards. That's how it got there. Yeah, from the outside. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we've really entered a different stage of the pandemic at this point where um, at this point, it's disproportionately affecting black folks. Isn't that right? 40% of new, yeah. new, all new cases in Philadelphia are black. Yeah. Not brown, <laughs> not white, black. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And besides the fact that, well, I mean, let's talk about some of the reasons why that's the case. I mean, Beth, and you have some notes here uh, and you started to talk about this. You mentioned historical distrust of uh, doctors and kind of professional medicine in the black community. Right. So I, whenever I think of the historical distrust of the medical community, or the medical field in the black community. I always think of my grandmother, my grandma Hartense, who was a feisty ass Philadelphian, light skinned woman with freckles and red hair. Um, but like this, just like a fighter, you know, like just a really strong personality. And my grandmother was diagnosed with, um, I believe cervical cancer on August 8th of 2007 and I believe she died September 9th so like 30 a little over 30 days later she died because she had this like strong distrust of medicine and doctors and that comes from a really real place so like I think of the Tuskegee experiment right my grandmother was like 70 something um when she passed maybe like 71 72 but she was like my age during the Tuskegee experiment when black men in, um, I'm looking it up. Holy Alabama, cow. Alabama, Alabama, um, where black men in Tuskegee, Alabama were going to doctors to be treated and were being infected with syphilis and experimented on and like tracked or even um, my grandmother used to always say that if you go to certain medical facilities that they would like sterilize you and keep you from having kids. That was a thought process of hers as well. Or even just the fact that we know that like the death rate for black mothers, the mortality rate for black mothers birthing, like laboring and birthing babies is like 280% higher than white women. And that's oftentimes because black women's pain isn't believed or um, just not honored. So like that distrust of the medical field and just kind of like these doctors don't know us, they don't know our bodies. And not only do they not know it, they don't care about it, I'm gonna do my thing. There's real historical implications for that, behind that, you know what I mean? Like that's that comes from a real place that has to be honored when we're looking at how COVID-19 is affecting black community. Yeah. It's not just because we're stupid. Yeah. I mean, we've talked previously about your experiences with trying to get a doctor to pay, to take your complaints seriously about pain. I had to um, act up really bad in a dentist's office one time. A dentist was like, oh, no, that can't possibly hurt you. I said, sir, one of two things is going to happen. All right. You're going to give me more of this Novocaine and then we're going to have a good time. Or I'm gonna scream. Uh-huh. And I'm gonna scream so loud. I'm gonna empty out your waiting room, and you're not gonna have no customers today. <laughs> and he gave me some goddamn Novocaine. <laughs> That's great. But believe me, like I'm yeah. serious. I can feel this. Sure. 
So black people not believing that COVID-19 could affect us or believing what uh, doctors say, yeah. it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Why, why would we trust modern medicine? It's never been on our side before. Why would right. it be now? Right. We kind yeah. of got to do our own thing and figure it out on our own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, there, and there are other reasons that it's harder for uh, for members of impoverished communities to see the doctor even, or mm-hmm. take time out of their day to be treated. Right. Like many of the people we're talking about in the, in the black community, are people who drive buses, are people who are working in the same environment as doctors and nurses emptying the trash. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's these essential jobs um, that are service jobs. And black folks are in service jobs because of socioeconomic disparities, right? Yes. Our neighborhoods are under-resourced. Our education systems that are based on our impoverished pop- property taxes are fucked mm-hmm. up. You know what I mean? Like, there are so many systems in place that kind of just, like, set the foundation for a crazy virus to really yeah. decimate our communities for us right. to get the worst of any worst right? right this is a crazy virus for everybody but when you're already um when you're already harmed by systems it affects you even more yeah andrew i am deeply affected by the way COVID 19 is affecting black communities how are you experiencing this as, you know, an Asian person, considering that this is the Chinese flu and that's not <laughs> racist because it comes uh-huh. from China? I, I love that you can just do an impression with one word. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So at this point, like members of my family have had like rate, like straight up just racist incidents. <laughs> Like one was in a grocery store where my aunt sneezed and somebody accused her of having coronavirus. And, wow. and another was when my, my cousin was just walking down the street and somebody started yelling at him. <laughs> so this, that, that is my personal experience with things. But also if you look in the news, that statistically they're saying that, uh, that hate crimes against Asians have skyrocketed and there have been really horrific things like like the, the the Chinese American family that was stabbed at a Sam's Club in Texas. Stabbed? Yes. They were attacked with a knife uh while they were in a Sam's Club in a in a COVID nineteen related hate crime. But it really highlights to me how um in Erica Lee's The Making of Asian America, it's a book about the history of Asian Americans in this country, and she says something like for Asians in America they're like our fortunes or how we're perceived is always tied to the relation of America with whatever the home country is, you know? So like if relations with China are good, then people are going to be nice to Chinese people. But if they're bad, it's going to flip. Um, and it'll flip quick. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's really highlighting how, you know, regardless of how much you're the model minority, um, you, racism is still there. And it can yeah. turn around in a heartbeat. So this is really reminding me of that. And I think it's it's waking up, up a lot of Asian Americans to the fact that um, we're never gonna we're never gonna be in. We're never gonna be in in a way that's completely safe, no matter how safe we feel. Because something like mm-hmm. this could happen, and all of a sudden we're foreigners again. All yeah. of a sudden mm-hmm. we're you know we're gonna carry the Chinese flu. Also, speaking of the Chinese flu, 
the president's use of Chinese, the Chinese virus for coronavirus was fucking terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. He said that on national, like, 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 I mean, everything he says is national, but like all the news programs were carrying his, um, his daily, like, this is what's going on in America briefing. Like it was everywhere. Yeah. When that started going around and then the conservative media started picking it up and like oh, all these Republicans were trying to defend like it's not racist. It, it is a Chinese virus. It's like uh, that's that was like my like, like it's the 30s. Uh, it's time to get out of Germany moment. <laughs> you know? In response to this. Uh, let me think. Let me see here. In response to this, one interesting thing that I wanted to bring up was uh, presidential candidate Andrew Yang. No relation to me. <laughs> Um, wrote a op-ed in the Washington Post where he basically argued that um, Asian Americans in this in the time of COVID need to step up and help our neighbors and wear red, white, and blue. I think he actually says that. Donate gear, vote, wear red, white, and blue, volunteer. Uh, we should show without a shadow of a doubt that we are Americans who will do our part for our country in this time of need. There's so um, much subtext in that message. Yeah. yeah. Um... Which I'm an incredibly tone deaf message where he got a lot of backlash. If there's anything that this coronavirus is showing us, it's that respectability politics is only going to get you so far. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, like there are systemic reasons why the Chinese virus is something that the president would say. And, Mm -hmm. and wearing red, white, and blue is not going to address that. How are you navigating this personally? If that makes sense. Like, I know when some bullshit happens with white people and, like, a cop kills us, I'm just mad as shit at white people. I'm kind of, like, more snarky in my uh, white people meetings. <laughs> so, like, uh-huh. how are you navigating it personally? Is, is Beth, is the question, how are you relating to white people? <laughs> I guess that is what I'm asking you, Andrew. Like, how, yeah, how are you relating to white people right now? Are you avoiding them? Are you... But I am kind of avoiding. Well, I'm avoiding everybody. Yeah, that's true. We all are. I mean, I do have to say, like, I was reading. I don't remember where I read this, but someone said something like, "I'm, I, I'm glad I'm staying in my house because I'm more afraid of being hate crime than I am of the coronavirus." Mm-hmm. I feel kind of like that. It is a weird time because we're all hunkered down anyway. So adding that extra amount of discomfort or fear on top of the fear that we're, I'm already feeling, yeah. is, you know, it's just another thing. I know a lot of Black folks were talking about, particularly Black men were talking about how we're going to be forced to wear masks soon and how they're like, I don't feel safe wearing a mask. Like, Mm -hmm. somebody's going to think that I'm going to try and rob this place and kill me. I'm more afraid of a cop shooting me because I have a bandana on in a store, even though it's required, than I am of this virus. Right. So yeah. I, I've, I've heard that kind of similar sentiment that like, I'm actually more afraid of white people and their racism and them feeling like this virus empowers their racism than I'm actually mm-hmm. afraid of the virus. Yeah, for sure. I feel like my kendo teacher said to me in the weeks leading up to the closure of the, of, of the kendo dojo, like, don't wear a mask. People are going to people are going to think you're sick because we're Asian. So we shouldn't. So I feel like I del- I held off wearing a mask as long as possible when going out in public. At this point, it's we're, we're seeing them everywhere. So it's it's less of a big deal. But right. yeah, that was definitely a consideration that I was thinking about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If there's anything good that has come out of this, and I think they're 
we could probably find good things that are coming out of this. But one thing I want to highlight when we're talking about um, the way that the Asian community is responding is there's been a lot of good discussion about the fact that we're dealing with racism directly, I think is a good opportunity for the Asian community to turn this into black solidarity mm-hmm. because Asians don't normally have to worry about our safety. But now we do, but that's something that black people have to worry about all the time. Mm-hmm. So there have been a bunch of interesting articles and, and, and a bunch of interesting discussion about how this is an opportunity for us to uh, use our, to unite these communities of color where we can relate to black folks who have to worry about their safety. Um, and uh, this can be an opportunity for us to build solidarity in that way. Uh, and I thought that was interesting and I thought that was a good response. And, and it's definitely something that I'll talk to my family about. Uh, but on that subject- I think they'll respond. I always feel such an adversarial relationship with Asian people. I feel really guilty admitting that. So I always wonder what, I don't feel that towards you because I feel like you put a really conscious effort into. I don't think you, I don't think you should feel guilty about that because there's a lot, there's, there is historical tension there. Yeah. Yeah. Like I hear you saying you've presented it to your family, but my immediate response is like, well, what did your family say? Yeah. You know, like no, I hear you. Um, and I think your family might think that same way about you. Would might think that same way about my family. You know what I mean? The the problem is that we've talked about this before, but a, a, a lot of Asian folk buy into white supremacy first of all because it's baked into society from colonialism, right? But also and it because, gives you a little access. Yeah, it gives you a little. I, I mean, it is it has objectively given Asians access in the past. Mm-hmm. You know, like adopting white ways was the way to get ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, and even to and for immigrants who came to this country and adopt coming to this country means adopting its values and adopting its values means racism. And when they've when these immigrants come to this country, not a sentence you ever want to hear, like starting a sentence with when these immigrants come to this country. Yeah, this <laughs> it territory. doesn't end well. No, yeah. <laughs> I'm not um, a racist, but <laughs> when these immigrants come to this, <laughs> when, when, when folks like my parents came to America, they weren't equipped to think about race or talk about race. No one talked mm-hmm. about that with them. So they just absorbed what was around them. And what was around them was racism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was presented as the norm. Sure. Like there's no reason to actually question this thing. This is how you get by. This is what it is. And if you want to survive, be normal. Yeah, exactly. Um, And I'm hoping that this experience with racism for my family, we can use this as a way to turn this into real empathy with black folks who Mm -hmm. also like are treated with suspicion wherever they go, who also Mm -hmm. have to watch their backs because someone might attack them out of, and they might get, you know, there might be a hate crime, you know, who also have to, which is this normal part of life for black folks. Um, Yeah. I, I'm hoping that my family can relate in that way. Um, Is yeah. it viewed as racist or does it feel like a fluke right now? Mm-hmm. Are they connecting it that way or does it feel like a thing that's happening right now? It is so explicitly racist that I don't think there's any way to get around the fact that it's racist. Do they, I guess what I'm asking is, does it feel like a present condition or can they see the deeper mm. like place that it comes from? That's a good question. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. I think 
what I, I wonder if they feel like in a couple of months we won't have to worry about this. Right. I the mean, flavor of racism will disappear with the virus. The truth is that I, I, I think they're, they're going to realize that, well, I don't have any real answers for this, but my mom all of a sudden has gotten extremely pro-Taiwan. She's always been pro-Taiwan, but now she's like sending me pins and stuff. And like, <laughs> as if like, if we be extra Taiwanese, we can show people that we're not Chinese. And it's not, we're, oh. we're not associated with the Chinese virus. But the truth is, like, it's not, it's not hard for me to just be like, Mom, it doesn't matter how, that you have a pin for Taiwan on. They're just going to see your face. Right. Yeah. And they're right. going to make assumptions They have because of racism, you know? <sighs> I don't know. I've got, oh, work, I've got work to do. We've all got work to do. <laughs> so, Andrew, you. You, it sounds like you've had, like, these preliminary conversations with your, your mom. I love your mom so much. I say that like every episode. I love my mom too. And it's, I, my mom is very receptive to everything, which is, yeah. which make things easier. Like, mm-hmm. like talk to me when I talk to my dad, <laughs> like that's, then we'll, then we'll have some, then we'll have something to talk about. That feels like an update. Yeah. It also is like our experiences with COVID-19 are so deeply overlapping. Like I, <laughs> this is stupid. And I'm going to acknowledge that before I even say it. But I wanted to get some hair glue because one of my tracks was slipping. And I was like, fuck, the hair store isn't open. Uh-huh. Well, my neighborhood hood hair store is owned by an Asian family. So something that like, something that's so simple that I really haven't even thought about, like my conveniences, like me wanting to go to the Chinese store and get like general so's chicken and a lucy Mm -hmm. or like getting like some um hair glue i can't do that and that feels really inconvenient for me but also like i share community with these folks and these are their businesses that they depend on for their livelihood Mm -hmm. like what's what's happening for those families yeah yeah that's such a great point i mean the fact that like a lot of times asian immigrants asian people open businesses in black communities has been a real source of tension in the past yeah uh, yeah you know but it, it's interesting that now i mean this this thing is also affecting us all economically so it's it's kind of a it sounds to me like you're describing it as kind of a, a little bit of connection like yeah all that's exactly together. what i'm trying to yeah describe yeah you can clearly when i walk around my hood ass neighborhood <laughs> Like I can clearly see how it's can how COVID nineteen is harming all of us, particularly I mean all of us people of color. Mm-hmm. Like all of the Asian owned stores are shut down. Like mm-hmm. all of us that are working, um, still working in the Save a Lot down the street from my house in the Rite Aid. You know, like you can see how it's deeply how our oppression is overlapping just by walking around the neighborhood. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so I, that's a great point. And I think we should continue being aware of opportunities where we can appreciate each other's humanity 
mm-hmm. express empathy. Maybe we should talk about that a little bit. And Chris, uh, apologies again for turning this into a- Asian issues and Black issues. This show is called Color Correction, right? And it's about Wait, racism. Wait, that works so well. Maybe we should change the podcast to Andrew's Asian issues and Bethany's <laughs> Black issues. I, I'm I'm trying it's to be on your side. Right. Like, well, and 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 rightly so. Like. Well, you got to change your name to Will because we got to continue the. <laughs> we need the alliteration. So white it would have to oh, be Will or like uh, oh, Wes. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, sorry. Hilarious. Uh, no, like this is important, and like, and I think maybe one of the important things I do of of occasion, not always, is let you guys talk and share your experiences. That's fine with me. <laughs> yeah. Well, letting us talk isn't the only thing that you're doing, Chris. Why don't you lead us into this next session, this section, sure. because we know you've been hard at work. I've been inspired by the fact you you talked uh, earlier before we started recording about how you felt inspired by our hub meeting this week. And, and you know what? That was you. You reached out. You got all these people together and reminded us of the importance of the work that we're doing. So why don't you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I I mean, like, I... I'm I mean, not just the hub, but like, <laughs> not just the hub, but like, what do you, uh, how are you responding? Because I, I appreciate that you have been responding, I guess is what I'm saying. I mean, I think the, the challenge for me is um, I live in a space where um, I'm well, and my families, my, my communities aren't necessarily um, ravaged in the same ways as people of color, but like, um, thanks to so many things in my life, I've, I have these relationships with um, all these communities who are impacted and our, our, a lot of our loved ones are, are connected or personally affected by the, by the crisis that's happening in the prison system right now. Um, and you, me, Bethany, were, were part of participatory defense. We've talked about that on, on shows before. Um, part of the struggle for me coming out of that work day and, and looking down those, those emails that really boil it down um, how, how, how bad the coronavirus is, how bad the pandemic is on racial lines in the prison system um, is like to fight my inertia, to fight that desire to just like want to like go to the ice cream and watch TV and veg out for the rest of my day um, and the way I was able to do that this week was, was a couple of ways. Um, our, our friends are continuing to meet and, and um, hold leadership meetings for our hubs. And I, I went to one last Friday. I went to one. Like, that's like, I joined one on Zoom. Um, but we, we talked about what's working well in our hubs. And a couple of our hubs are, are still connecting to families, to loved ones who are working out their cases, while our hub has just kind of like been and quietly holding meetings with no participants. Hearing how people are actually meeting with people still connected to their own personal struggles, like, and, and hearing what's working well for those hubs got me to be like, well, we just need to meet as a, as a I just called it a family meeting. Like, let's just call together the whole team and talk and, and like, make a point to do that, to stay connected. Um, and I, it's really helped me like root back in um, and hear what's going on. Um, Beth, I think you, you did a great job really of, of talking about the situation. Um, we had our first 
death this week. Actually, I think two people have died, two women. Um, yeah. I'm actually really distracted now. My line sister just texted me that her mom died this morning from COVID-19. Fuck. Yeah. I so, just happened to read the text message. I'm sorry, Beth. In New York. Can we break this up for a, a little bit? Yeah. Sure. sure. All right. All right. So are we back? Yeah. Um, so we just got off the call for a little bit because Bethany got some news. Uh, so Bethany, we talked a little bit about this and you said it was okay if we, if we talk about this now. Yeah. It also feels, I don't want to go back into whatever we were talking about as if this didn't happen. So, you know, why don't you tell us how you're feeling and what happened? Yeah. So as we're recording and kind of, for me, feels like we're talking about how COVID-19 is affecting um, POC communities. For me, I was distancing myself from it because it hasn't personally affected me. And then it did. Um, so right in the middle of us recording, one of my sorority sisters just texted me that her mom died this morning of COVID-19 in New York. And it feels... I feel overwhelmed, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because this is the closest that it's hit home for me. Yeah. Like we see the numbers on the news. We can read the articles about how it's affecting black communities. And then it hits home and it hits a little different that time. Mm -hmm. It's just weird timing because I started not, I could see my phone lighting up. And I started not to read the text messages because we were recording. But then when I saw it continuously lighting up, I'm like, okay, they're saying something I need to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. And it's this. Yeah. So. That really is the, that really is the point. This, this is affecting people. It's, it's real. Yeah. And it's affecting, I think the point that feels really driven home is it's affecting my people you know what i mean like mm -hmm. my people theoretically black folks poc folks you know yeah but now it's also affecting like my people that i love so dearly that i personally know whose house that i've stayed in you know like mm -hmm. i don't know it feels fucking nuts yeah yeah and i'm also thinking to myself like, if this had happened four months ago, I would be like, all right, I got to drive to New York next weekend or whenever the service is. Mm -hmm. That's not going to be an option. Right. Yeah. Well, if she, if she ever hears this at some point in the future, I, I hope she hears um, your care for her, your empathy and concern. And ours, too. Um, yeah we care about 
her and her family. And I'm really heartbroken that this happened. Yeah. I'm not sure it makes sense to go into anything else right now. Yeah, I agree. So what I'd like to do is just end the podcast here. And then maybe we can record in a week or something. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fine. Yeah. Beth, is there anything else that either one of us can do for you? I don't think so. I think I'm just going to, I was going to have somebody come help me do my weeds, but I'm kind of, I'm done for the day. Yeah. So thanks for being understanding guys. Yeah, absolutely. Let's just end it there. All right. Cool. All right, you guys, talk to you soon. All right. All right. Take care. Bye. Thanks, everybody. Bye.